episode of the Serverless Mindset Podcast. So today I'd like to talk about uh, some of the areas or the steps that I feel will help teams uh, succeed with serverless. These are not obviously the only things that you could possibly do to prepare your team uh, to succeed with serverless, but these are three areas that I've found to be quite useful with just teams that I've worked with in the past. I've noticed that whenever engineers grasp the full uh, scope and extent of these three areas, that all of a sudden things start to click and fall into place uh, much more easily. So let's let's see what these are. So the first one is infrastructure as code. So obviously infrastructure as code is what allows you to manage infrastructure. That might be networks, virtual machines, databases, uh, Lambda functions, etc through code rather than via manual processes, right? Rather than clicking buttons, essentially. And so when you allow developers to write, run, uh, run and maintain their infrastructure, you, you set yourself up for success, really, as your team embarks on the serverless adoption journey. There's three benefits of embracing infrastructure as code, in my mind. Uh, the first one is that obviously it ensures consistency across all the environments. And so you avoid those unfortunate instances where code appears to work on a developer's machine but everything breaks down as as soon as that code is pushed to production so what you get there is that the system and the configuration required to run your application are clearly visible to everyone right everything is perfectly uh, perfectly replicable across any number of environments whether it's on the developer's machine whether it's on staging or whether it's on production obviously there may be sometimes some sort of slight differences in place. Perhaps the machines running your production workload could be more powerful than the ones used for local testing. But in general, all the environments resemble each other quite closely. So you reduce inconsistency across different environments. The second reason why infrastructure as code is particularly helpful is that it makes infrastructure reviewable by developers. So as soon as you know infrastructure becomes part of the team's uh, sort of development lifecycle, then any code necessary to alter that infrastructure will need to be reviewed. And so the benefits of reviewing each other's code, uh, obviously, are well known when you talk about code in general. Uh, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to talk about them now. But there's one particular area that I think is particularly affected by uh, code reviewing, positively affected, that is, and that is learning. And so what you get there is that regardless of the framework that you choose to, that you decide to use to handle your infrastructure as code, there's always going to be a bit of a learning curve, right? But if you do, if you use infrastructure as code and you have code reviews and people reviewing each other's infrastructure changes, very quickly, people who are maybe less knowledgeable with, let's say you decide to use pure CloudFormation, right? People who are maybe less knowledgeable with CloudFormation can learn from the others who know it a little bit better just by simply reviewing the changes that these other people are pushing into their pull requests. And so there's an element of learning there where relatively quickly you get the team kind of catching up and learning how to do basic infrastructure as code. And then, and then the last, uh, I think, reason why infrastructure as code is particularly helpful is that it enables you to increase the rate at which you develop your products and then you ship them to market. Now, the reason for this is, uh, from an organizational standpoint, is because you have fewer blockers, okay? You have teams who team, teams that own fully uh, whatever it is that they need to push. They don't need to wait for a separate 
team uh, that's in charge of infrastructure, for example. Uh, you know, you, you write the code, you build your business logic, then you build the infrastructure needed, and then you push it. The same team, the same self-contained two pizza team, for example, can, you know, just build what it is that they need to build and, and push it all the way, ideally all the way to production. There's no blockers, there's no infrastructure experts that need to be involved. Everyone's everyone's involved. And so that just makes makes sort of the the, pay, the speed of development, uh, I believe, just much quicker because again, you've got fewer fewer blockers. But then of course, from just from a technical standpoint with infrastructure as code, you get far more reliable systems. So because again, what's in production is consistent with what's been tested locally. And, and given that you've got everything going through the standard code review process, it, it simply is less likely for things to go wrong. And, you know, and if, if you couple this with an effective CI/CD pipeline, then all the changes that are shipped can be somewhat consistently either bugs-free or even the bugs that get, get, get that are there can be caught and resolved quickly. And so this was the first major area that I think will make a really important difference in kind of getting a team up to speed with, with working with serverless. The second thing that I'd like to go through is event-driven architecture. Now, obviously this is a huge topic, but I'll just quickly touch on it, right? So um, event-driven architecture is, is a model for designing your software. An event-driven system is one where events are at the core of your system, as opposed to having uh, sort of synchronous requests and responses. Typically with an event-driven system, you have event producers that generate a stream of events and then event consumers that are listening to those events coming in. One of the major benefits of event-driven architecture is that it enables you to build loosely coupled applications. And so if, and, and it, if these are well-designed, then they can be very resilient and they can deliver uh, improved performance to the end user. Now, serverless, really has event-driven as part of, it, of its DNA. Now, this is a slightly controversial statement, and I, I, among others, have advocated for the fact that you don't need event-driven architecture from the get-go, especially if you start, if you're building sort of a small project, you can still leverage a lot of the benefits of serverless without having to go full-on event-driven. But certainly, as soon as you want to scale, that is it's just a natural and, and even easier way of doing things with serverless. Event-driven systems, even to begin with, don't need, don't need to be too complex, okay? So with, for example, with AWS, you have uh, EventBridge, which is this extremely powerful, but also relatively easy to use service. And a lot of companies are using EventBridge with Lambda to power these event-driven applications. So it doesn't have to be overly complex. And there are these managed services that really make your life quite a lot easier. And then the third area that I believe uh, will make, will really improve your quality of life and will really prepare and set your team up for success as you get ready to either use for the first time or maybe double down on your understanding of serverless. So the third area is solution architecture diagrams. This is something that I hear very rarely being mentioned, but in my experience, a solution architecture diagram it's just a fantastically powerful way to bring about clarity and keep stakeholders aligned. Now, obviously, building a solution architecture art diagram can be intimidating at first if, you, if you've not done it before. Remember that un unless your job title is a, literally a solution architect, then unless th that's, that's what you do as, uh, for a living, then your diagram doesn't need to be perfect or it doesn't even need to look pretty or anything. For most engineers, you know, you, you'll build a diagram just for internal use. And so there are three things that I believe need to be highlighted 
by any useful solution architecture diagram. Again, without, without it needing to be perfect. And these three things are number one, users. Number two, the technologies used. And number three, the flow of information. So you start with the user who is going to use this system or feature or component, then line up all the technologies, uh, the, the technological components that will be used. And then lastly, draw lines between them and make notes to the side if necessary to bring attention to the flow of data and the sequence of actions. And so first you outline the users, then you outline all the technological components, you know, the, the particular database you want to be using, the, the computing solutions, whatever it may be, right? And then and then you use lines to sort of draw attention to the flow of information. What what gets um, you know which um, application gets gets what from what. So that's it for this episode. These are my three top recommendations. Um, again, not the only things that you can possibly or that you should possibly learn about as you work with serverless, but these are just three areas that I found they can be really, really helpful in, again, either preparing your team to work with serverless for the first time, or if, you, if you're already within the serverless ecosystem, they can really help people to sort of level up their their knowledge and their understanding and start to actually click with the, the benefits of uh, using a serverless architecture. So these three things are, just to repeat again, infrastructure as code, event-driven architecture and solution architecture diagrams. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and don't forget to head over to the serverlessmindset.com where you can listen to all of our previous podcast episodes as well as subscribe to our weekly newsletter where we talk about all things serverless, cloud and modern software development. Thanks again and see you next time.